Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Rachel. Hi, everyone. And Scott. Hello. Today we're going to be talking about Work Won't Love You Back, a book by Sarah Jaff that came out a few months ago. This is a book that we all read as a group within the Punching Out Collective. You may have heard us mention it at various points over the last few months. And it's something that I I think we've all taken a lot from reading it. Um, It's something that um, I think has, if not necessarily been eye-opening, has been a, a good summation of a lot of sentiment that was already there for us on the left. Um, The central theme of the book, if you couldn't glean from the title, is this idea that um, people are being sort of having their labor extracted from them under the premise that they should be loving their work and work is not rewarding them in the way it should. You know, the fulfillment that they are expected to get from their work isn't enough to put food on the table in many cases. You know, just before we delve into some of the specifics of that, uh, Rachel, Scott, um, what were your thoughts on the book? Scott, what was that um, sort of trite quote that you shared that probably everybody's heard, but about love and work that... The, the, if you love what you do, you will never work a day in your life. Yeah, that's the one. Um, So basically, this book dismantles that. Um, because we're working all the days of our lives and yeah, what are we getting for it? Uh, depression, isolation, uh, loneliness. Um, I think the pandemic has made all of those things worse. Um, and I thought this book was a really excellent look at The fact that as we feel more isolated and lonely, a really good reminder that all of the things, and this is what our show focuses on too, all of the things that we are each struggling with are common struggles and that each of the different jobs that she looks into, each chapter focuses on a different kind of employment that is exploitative, but the exploitation is the same. And ultimately, it seems uh, a treatise on solidarity and love amongst people that can be deeply connected through struggle, shared struggle. Those are my thoughts. What about you, Scott? Oh, my goodness. Well, it, it honestly, it was not the book that I thought it was going to be when I first got into it. I don't know exactly what I was expecting other than maybe more specifically dealing with that, you know, rise and grind, love your work culture, which it does sort of tangentially and gets around to that. But um, I came to appreciate the book and the structure that it had where um, some titles will focus, I think, too much on anecdote or get really dry with history or uh, alienate people with theory. 
and this book, how each chapter uh, began and ended with a, a single anecdote focusing on a person in their life um, rather than like dozens of little ones throughout. And then in between that, it wove the history and theory related to the topic um, in a way that made sense with the anecdote. And then you had, you know, uh, repeating themes and motifs in between the different types of work that she explored so that you could see connections ultimately between academic interns and, you know, domestic workers, as, as you were saying, all having essentially the same struggles, which, you know, again, hopefully leads towards greater sense of uh, solidarity and appreciation of all workers. Yeah, I yeah. never found it dry. I was a little worried, honestly, um, a lot of pandemic reading had to go on the back burner because it was just too full of despair. And the title, Work Won't Love You Back, could be misconstrued as, as being you know full of despair. But I actually found this book full of hope. And it was really uplifting. Yeah. Uh, Scott, you had talked about how Jaffe weaves in history throughout the book. And I, I think one of the more striking examples of that is in just the second chapter, the second main chapter, so to speak, of, which focuses on uh, domestic workers. Um, and she sort of lays out this historical course in which wealthy women in the United States entered the workplace and to sort of replace the work that had been done by housewives throughout much of the 20th century, um, in comes a force, in comes, you know, a lot of uh, domestic workers who are coming from uh, poor backgrounds, often uh, backgrounds from Latin America in the case of the U.S. And she writes in the U.K., it's often Eastern Europe where these workers are coming from. And so there's been sort of a in some ways, a theft of wealth from those people making a pittance to work as domestic workers so that riches can be made by women in industrial West. And I was wondering, you know, what you thought about all that. I, yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think that she also, I don't know, for lack of better words, didn't really pull any punches on some of the, you know, maybe not a high leftist, but liberal sacred cows of uh, pointing out how, yeah, the Betty Friedan feminine mystique may have liberated middle-class women, but it was only able to do that at the expense of, um, well, like you were saying, imported domestic work. So like my self-actualization has come at the cost of somebody else's subjugation. Um, and then in the later chapters, um, with uh, the nonprofits looking at like Planned Parenthood that I think it's, um, it, it, you know, it, it, it's, you know, sort of a liberal darling, but they're the, the way that they, you know, haven't always treated their workers the best and whatnot that um, the issues are, yeah, like really systemic and historical, I guess, as you were getting at. And also that, there's sort of it, it brings up like contradictions in capitalism that don't want that that it itself cannot really address like in you know the domestic work is the saintly woman's calling but you're also you know dirty and not valuable if you're doing it 
sort of thing. And we can't really reconcile those two. Or in order to fully participate in capitalist culture, I have to remove myself from the reproductive work that necessarily sustains capitalist culture. Um, and then I need somebody else to do that for me. Or towards the end of the book, the you know artists and uh, sports figures, like people that are highly valued on the relative scale that you know, because you're doing something that you love, it doesn't deserve as much respect or compensation. You know, you should just shut up and play the game. You don't need to organize, right? you know, make you don't need to pretty, take a knee, you know, you, you, you get to make your pretty pictures all day. You shouldn't also get to eat sort of thing. Right. Um, yeah. That should be compensation enough. Yeah. And there's, you know, especially early in the book, there's a, uh, a gender element to this, you know, that mm -hmm. she is very explicit about pointing out, um, especially in the case of, uh, you know, domestic workers and um, mothers who are demonized for relying on public benefits, which is another chapter of the book. Right. Um, you know, she writes that there's this assumption that, um, you know, they're expected to love this work. And so they shouldn't mm -hmm. expect to be well paid for it. I'm just going to quote from her a bit here. Uh, quote, the assumption that housework and reproductive work came naturally to women and satisfied some deep inner feminine need, they argued, shaped the experiences of all women, even those who were wealthy enough to hire others, usually also women, to do their housework. You know, it's something mm -hmm. that, you know, has deep ripple effects throughout society. Just that yeah. basic assumption. Well, it forces us to punch across instead of punching up and to exploit each other and to continue exploiting each other instead of focusing on changing the system. And I think that's a, a trap that we fall into so often because it's a lot easier in a way, a lot more accessible. Like, you know, it's, it's not as far away to punch across than it is to punch up. So, um, and it feels so overwhelming to think about like how do we change these systems that oppress all of us um i mean that's what we're constantly searching for and you know it's sometimes easy to get caught up in the stuff that's too close the day-to-day -day stuff and to feel like the blame maybe is closer than it actually is and that just keeps us distracted um but there's also that sort of like purity argument that can happen. You know, I have to remind myself often that capitalism doesn't allow us to live our ideals in real time. Like there's no ethical consumption in capitalism. Therefore, we have to give ourselves reprieve and um, be kind to ourselves and kind to each other, because that's another way that we can end up punching across instead of punching up is by shaming people for the things that they need to do in order to make ends meet. And it's always a compromise and it's, you know, sometimes a greater or lesser compromise, but it's, it's a hustle and it's heartbreaking. The more you think about it, the more bummed out you can get. <laughs> so how do we, yeah, have, um, give each other and ourselves the grace to do what we need to do in the day-to-day, -day, but also fight for something better. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this sort of um, analysis of Jaffe, like, extends 
throughout this section of the book and it comes up in different ways, this sort of these gendered expectations. And in the case of mothers and domestic workers, there's the sense that women are naturally caring and naturally Mm -hmm. kind and naturally loving. But she writes how the U.S. famously uh, teachers teaching is a profession that is uh, majorly done by women in the U.S., Mm -hmm. but that isn't the case in Europe. It's not some natural phenomenon. It's a fact that, um, you know, she writes that it was just the case that when public schooling was starting in the U.S., states were looking to keep costs down and women were cheap to hire. Mm -hmm. It was assumed that women would, you know, young women would soon be married and thus have a husband to rely on for income. And they were really just working for, you know, pin money, so to speak. And this shows up in the chapter about retail as well. You know, mm-hmm. women are, which, um, you know, women were hired not just because, you know, the kind customer service, but because they were cheaper and they were expected to be gone sooner rather than later. Because when you aren't working very long in one position, you end up not fighting the boss so hard because you're not going to see the fruits of that struggle in many cases. You mean the Amazon 150% turnover model? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Wait, didn't she also talk about how um, like teachers weren't allowed to be married and have children? I was, yeah, I I was thinking that as well. I feel like that in, in several of those, you know, I I don't remember who passed around a while ago one of those old teacher contracts that like right. specified the morality requirements. But I know that she did mention that the the teachers were contractually not allowed to be married, and as soon as they were married, then they, you know, were, they were out of a job. And I, if I recall, she said that that was also common in retail and mm-hmm. even domestic work that you were yep. expected to you know, do the quote unquote dirty work while also inhabiting this pure virginal in between space. You're, 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 you're Britney Spears, right? You're no longer <laughs> a child and all that, but uh, you know, you, you haven't been married yet. You're out of school yourself. And so in the meantime, you can be um, a, a, a saint donating your body, time and resources to maintaining our society and not expecting anything in return. Well, the other thing that, seems to come out for me is that like love and that caring is a finite resource basically and that either it's being extracted as labor or once you have your own family there won't be anything left for you to share with anybody else that isn't your blood um and or your you know your partner in life so yeah, obviously there's nothing left useful for anybody, so you got to go. Well, and that's something she also mentioned in the chapter on the domestic workers that apparently a lot of the in-home domestic workers, nannies and whatnot, uh, there's a, a preference for importing foreign workers who, mm-hmm. if they have a family, they are not distracted by wanting to spend time with on a daily basis. You get to spend time with the employer's family Right. And, you know, will not, you're not going to be uh, yeah, distracted by knowing that your own son and daughter are just around the corner and you could technically go see them. You're just sending your check back to them via grandma once a month. Right. Uh, Which is, yeah, devastating. I remember watching an episode, strangely enough, of, um, it was an Anthony Bourdain episode on uh, Filipino nannies. 
uh, and I can't, I think it was about the Philippines, but basically about all the families that these women had raised in order to send money back home to their own families that they only got to see like once a year. And I, I just bawled my eyes out. It was heartbreaking. Um, because the truth is she loved the children that she was taking care of, but there's always so much of your heart that is just wrenched, you know, across an ocean. And yeah. Ugh. And a point that Jeffy really lays out in that chapter is how so much of our economy relies on this work getting done because there are so many workers who would not be able to go to the jobs they have if not for, you know, the domestic worker taking care of their children at home. You know, capitalism is relying on this underpaid class of domestic workers. Um, right. And it's not something that she drew in, not a comparison that she drew in the chapter about education, because this book was largely written before the pandemic. But, you know, it, it struck me that in the early spring this year, so much of the discussion was the idea that kids had to go back to school so their parents could go back to work. You mm-hmm. know, once again, it's this idea of caretaking is the foundation upon which the rest of capitalism exists. Right. And, and I think that's something that it was not as explicit to me my first time through the book, but then I realized how obvious her logical progression was in linking those things in part one of the reproductive labor that takes place within a family, which is capitalized and extended to domestic work in somebody else's family, which is, you know, an, an, an extension of that in teaching that they're all there. There's hybrid crossover, whatever elements to each of those. And it's like, as, as they get one step removed from a person's own household, they still get managed and exploited, I guess, in, in similar ways. It, it also made me think of the article that was shared recently about the woman who uh, quit her $17 an hour paramedic job because her childcare costs was 15 bucks an hour yeah. and she couldn't afford to keep her kid mm-hmm. uh, uh, in, in childcare and ended up driving for Uber eats with her son in the back seat the whole time so that she could keep an eye on him. Um, because that outsourcing of domestic labor is not available to all laborers. Right. Yeah. I was really hoping, you know, that out of this pandemic, I am currently 30 weeks pregnant myself. And it's, you know, reading this book, reading this book made me think a lot about what it is to love and what it is to care for each other. And, um, you know, the whole concept of social reproduction and, um, yeah, whether that comes naturally or not. I mean, a lot of these things are sort of like a collective social mythology. And there's a lot of shame that accompanies those things. Um, And women who feel like motherhood doesn't come naturally to them or, or women who just have no desire to be mothers, you know, that is a totally valid thing. And for a long time, that's how I felt as well. And I wasn't ready. And strangely enough, the most pressure I was getting to take that role on was from other women, which shocked me, still shocks me. I don't understand that. Um, And I wonder if it's sort of this vicious cycle of pressure, women who were pressured into it themselves 
in order to find validation in that role, um, if they can pressure others into it, it's sort of this a weird, like skewed shared solidarity in suffering (laughs) sometimes, like in a role that they felt obligated to take on um, at a time in their lives when they didn't ever question whether it was something they wanted or not. But um, there are a lot of aspects to it that don't come naturally. You know, even, even people who want to become mothers may struggle with all sorts of things that we've been taught are natural, like breastfeeding or um, swaddling or, you know, changing diapers or, yeah, just all sorts of things that are really hard or really gross or really painful or, you know, all manner of things. And it sounds like it's inevitable as a parent, regardless of whether you're a mother or a father or some other caretaker, that you have moments where you wonder, what have you done? And that's okay (laughs) to have moments of deep regret or just exhaustion uh, or despair. And I think that's, that's part of caretaking. It's hard, but I, I was thinking in this pandemic that perhaps as a nice side effect, wouldn't it be lovely if people realized like how much work it is to care for children and maybe have some more respect and some more um, reverence for teachers and caretakers of all different kinds. And it seemed like that was going really well at the beginning. You know, there were a lot of like, you know, signs and banners and things thanking essential workers for all their stuff. And there's still some of that. But I feel like once again, capital has done an excellent job of pitting us against each other as things, you know, reopen, quote unquote, and people are forced back into jobs into which they don't feel safe or don't feel valued or both um, and are, you know, completely undercompensated, overworked, underpaid. And now, yeah, people are attacking each other for all the same tropes, being lazy, not putting their backs into it, like instead of um, you know, wanting more money on unemployment than they would be making in their unsafe, miserable job. <laughs> what do we what do we do with that? How do we get around that? Well, well, you talk about sort of the pressure you feel to fulfill gender roles and to uphold, you know, this expectation and something that I wasn't expecting to get out of this book when I started reading, but which I found a lot of is sort of a history of how those roles are shaped and how Mm -hmm. uh, workplaces and um, capitalism more broadly has shaped those roles. Um, You know, she a lot of them are relatively recent phenomenon. Things that we take for granted as always having been the case were not always the case. You know, she spends a long time describing witch hunts in the 17th century and their role in sort of disciplining women for feeling that they could be independent. I had forgotten about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to quote from the first chapter of the book, uh, quote, up and until up until and into the 20th century, working class women worked in factories and mills. They took in laundry and did piecework while cooking, cleaning, and caring for children. 
Changes in the structures of work produce changes in our understanding of gender, of what it meant to be a woman. Mm-hmm. It's, like I said, so much of what we take for granted does not have to be the case. It does it's a not, social construction. Right. Yeah. And she does a good job, I feel, of laying out just how society has constructed these things. Right. Yeah. And how the Fordist family wage basically created the middle-class housewife yeah. um, as a concept. You had mentioned earlier the you know teachers' contracts that included they could be fired for getting married, but in the Fortis family wage situation, there were inspectors of the home making sure that housewives for the workers in Ford plants were fulfilling their duties as a respectable mother, so that the men could qualify for the family wage. You know, yeah, the higher it, wages. Yeah. It trickles all throughout society. It's. It's and really... monogamy. Monogamy was also enforced by Ford, by those inspectors, which is really, yeah, heteronormative mon- monogamy, of course. When it's laid out like this, it's sort of shocking just how imposed from above all of this is and mm-hmm. how unnatural it actually is. We're going to take a brief break here, but when we come back, we'll move on to some of the later chapters of the book where she describes people who are expected to love their work and it's expected to be a passion for them and the ways in which, naturally, that gets used to exploit them. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Rachel. Hello. And Scott. Hi there. We've been discussing a book by Sarah Jaffe titled Work Won't Love You Back. Um, The first part of that book and the first part of our show today was about these jobs like domestic work and teaching where there's this expected element of personal caring and love involved in the work itself. And the second part of the book and the second segment of this show today is going to focus on the jobs where people are expected to naturally love the work itself, where it is thought of as a passion and something that people are pursuing rather than, you know, work at all in many cases. Um, We get back to that famous quote about do what you love and you won't work a day in your life. Um, And sort of leading off this segment um, of the book is a chapter about artists. And artists are one group of people who are often derided for, quote, not having a real job or Mm -hmm. not working in many cases. And, you know, part of this discussion in the book and, uh, you know, throughout broader society is really one about how work gets defined and who gets included in that definition. And in many cases, to their detriment, who gets excluded? Artists are one group of people who very often are excluded from that definition. You know, they're not thought of as workers. But um, I'm wondering, where else do we see that sort of exclusion happen? Wow. A lot of places, I think. Um, I was reminded of an episode we did a while back about, um, you know, comedians and actresses, which I think fall into the 
artists category, I suppose. But yeah, basically that most artists need a job in order to support that other job that, yeah, takes a lot of, a lot of time and a lot of skill and that it's just as much work, but it doesn't sustain them because yeah, generally we view those jobs as, you know, the passion of doing it should be payment enough. Right. And and that sort of gets back to the broader theme of the book, doesn't it? You know, the idea that you're being paid in the the sheer joy of doing the work. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That should sustain you because that, you know, puts food in your belly and keeps a roof over your head and clothes on your back. All of that leaves you time to have fulfilling relationships and, you know, all the other things that we need to feel whole. You know, not not to get us away from this book, but I'm reminded of something else I read a, f- a few years ago now. Um, the, the title of the book is uh, Work the Last Thousand Years by Andrea Kamlossi, which is a, an attempt to sort of create this broad history of the last thousand years of work. Wow. Um, and Sounds- a lot of that book is about linguistics, actually. Ooh. It's about how work gets defined and Mm -hmm. she draws she notes that in a lot of languages not just english there's this distinction made between the word for work and the word for labor you know Mm. work is something that you're Mm. you're putting your hands into you're putting your you know it's dirty work in many cases Mm -hmm. and labor is something that you can be proud of a labor of love yes yes and and so the people who get treated under that first label of work, you know, do not get some of the rewards that are given to the laborers who can be, you know, proud and boastful about what they do. But there are Mm. also people who don't even get the satisfaction of having their work called work. You know, just to go back to the first chapter of this book, mothering, you know, so Mm -hmm. much of that caring doesn't get counted as work. It's not remunerated. I'm not going to use that word. It's not paid (laughs) under capitalism in many cases, unless you're hiring someone else to do it for you. Mm -hmm. But, and so, you know, when we talk about unemployed mothers, they're Mm -hmm. still doing a lot of work, but they are not working for someone else. So it almost doesn't count. Yeah. Except that I think capital would agree that, you know, the creation of new workers and, yeah, all the social reproductive work that goes into um, preparing those new people for the workforce uh, is absolutely necessary for our systems to continue exploiting everybody. <laughs> there needs to be fresh, fresh bodies for exploitation constantly, which is maybe where all the pressure comes from. But yeah, it's, it's so baked in that we don't even realize that, yeah, we're pressuring each other instead of being pressured ourselves. <laughs> I, I, I was just thinking, and I hope this isn't too much of a sidebar. I'll try not to tangentialize it, um, if that's a word. But uh, <clears throat> the, the, the talked about the work of, like, mothering or caretaking as, like, a calling, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's something that is supposed to be fulfilling in itself and something that you are, you know, just morally, physically, and spiritually moved to do because it's in your nature. It's an evolutionary um, imperative. And, sure. And, and yeah. you're the sort of person who does that kind of thing. And to an extent, you know, being an artist, um, right. you know, or an athlete is similar. Like, right. 
it's something that you're supposed to be invested in and find fulfilling in and of itself. And I do think it's fascinating that there are a couple of career fields that we expect as a society the people to be invested in and find fulfilling as a moral calling in itself, Mm -hmm. which are also fairly well compensated with benefits and good job security and say maybe a union boss who would go to war rather than admit that you ever did anything wrong, like perhaps police. Good point. Obviously, all of those groups are a, a, a different levels of the uh, capitalist support hierarchy and whatnot, but they are all support roles, basically. And we've, we've chosen to obviously valorize some and compensate some and assume that other ones will just get done whether we do anything about it or not. Um, yeah. Anyway, that was just a thought that had popped into my well, head. That's a really interesting. Talking about thought. labor that's not considered work. It's almost like it's in your blood and either it's in your blood or it's not. You have these, you know, quote unquote, God given talents or these um, proclivities, these propensities to those, you know, you're compelled to do that work. Mm-hmm. Right. You, you feel and called it, to it. I think, yeah, you're maybe you're compelled to run into burning buildings and rescue children or pull right. cats out of trees, or maybe you're compelled to sling paint on a canvas, but one of one of those gets a pension. Yeah, exactly. Why do we value some of those things and not others? But then but then there's also the um the fame element that comes into it. You know, there's the possibility of insane levels of compensation. Um and I'm also not saying that fame is not exploitative because it certainly is and I've often thought that fame uh, is very damaging to people and that regardless of how much you get paid, it, it can be completely devastating to your spirit and basically push you apart from other people such that, you know, you sort of lose a sense of self in all of that. You've, you've been bought, um, and sold and reproduced. Yeah. For the benefit of others. Um, and that's, yeah, something that, I don't know how we could ever stop doing that to people, but I don't think it's healthy <laughs> personally. It, it, it's also perhaps to bring my tangent back around closer to the topic at hand, something that she brought up quite a bit in this second half of the book was that, uh, that notion of fame or the individual genius mm-hmm. as a driver mm-hmm. of this type of work where whether in uh, art or academia or sports or the technology world. Yeah. Gaming. There are, there's a couple of superstar breakout people and there's the notion that I am on my path to being the next Jackson Pollock or Elon Musk and that any sacrifice is worth it to get there um, to be one of those superstars, even though there's, you know, statistically it's not going to happen you know statistically there are no famous people right there just happened to be one or two and Um, we all seem to pretty much agree that those famous people are terrible and we mock them mercilessly for being completely out of touch with what matters in life really i mean how much we do but they have a pretty big twitter following yeah but like how much shade does jeff bezos get you know, does anybody ever say nice things about Jeff Bezos? 
Really? Oh, yeah. If you just have to look in places other than our own to find it. I um, guess so. I guess so. Yeah, maybe I'm just in an echo chamber of negativity about people like that. <laughs> Jeff brings up this concept of hope labor, which is work mm. that is performed in the hope that down the line you will get paid better than you are today. And this is basically the definition of an internship, mm-hmm. um, which he devotes an entire chapter to. And, you know, you know, thinking of interns, I'm struck that there are the sort of debates over what is and is not work aren't just an abstract thing. They have real material impacts on people's lives. You know, interns have, in many cases, had to fight to be considered employees so that they would have the same uh, protections, protections that employees do. You're seeing that in the gig economy now, where there's this big battle between um, workers who want to be viewed as employees and their companies who are demanding they be seen as independent contractors who aren't entitled to health benefits and what have you. Aren't entitled Uh, to really anything, anything that can be externalized by the corporations for their own gains. Similarly, you know, just to broaden even further, um, college sports, you know, Mm -hmm. the NCAA wants you to call those players student athletes because it really does not want you to call them workers. Right. Because once they are workers, they are entitled Entitled to certain certain... things like a union and pay that they can use outside of campus. Right. Absolutely. I think really, uh, not to be glib, but. It's the way that we justify slavery. Like, what is slave labor? Um, How can we extract labor from people while convincing them that they don't deserve any remuneration, uh, any, you know, safety considerations, any supports um, in a formalized way? And how can we get them to buy into it and continue those systems of extraction? Really, when you lay it out like that, a lot of this book is sort of, um, you know, this is going to sound very, you know, unmaterial, but it's a history of argumentation. It's a history of the cases made by capital for mm-hmm. why you should want to work for them. You right. know, in the New Deal era in this country, it was the idea that, you know, you would get a, you know, a family wage, so to speak, mm-hmm. for your time at the factory. And after 40 years, you'd have a pension. The boss got rich, but you did okay for yourself too. And obviously that excluded a lot of people, you know, race right. and gender. Farm workers, um, yep. Yes. But it was one justification for, you know, the capitalist order. And right. as that broke down in the 70s, they've had to rely on a different one, which is this idea of finding fulfillment through your work, finding possibly fame and fortune through your work. If you are lucky enough to be a Jeff Bezos at the end of the day, right. Um, lucky enough it, to be that awful. It's way of getting you to work for less than what you're worth. Well, the other thing that always strikes me, and it's always been a source of consternation for me, is that when you meet people, the first thing that they ask you is, what do you do? And I always reply with, are you asking me what I do for fun or what I do to pay the bills? And In either case, a revolutionary anarchist. <laughs> um, usually that's not my first response because you got to be careful about those things. But um, 
I think it's so interesting that we are reproducing that your work is your identity and that people are interested in knowing who you are based on asking what you do for money. Well, I also lived in Los Angeles for a while where everybody had a day job and a real job. The real <laughs> job was always in film right. and made no money. Yep. And the day job was usually in the service sector yep. and paid the bills. So, you know, there, there was some nuance to how people answered that question. It, it's funny because in many other cities, acting is the job that wouldn't be considered real. It's... Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. It's also interesting, I think, um, thinking about this with the interns, um, with the unpaid labor mm -hmm. uh, going into it. There's also a sort of through line with the uh, the gendered and the classed and the racialized work, um, e even in this area where uh, she talked a bunch in the interns chapter about how, for example, engineering interns are a lot more likely to be paid internships mm. than like art museum interns. Right. Um, you know, and or nonprofit interns or, or nonprofit interns where, you know, the, and the skill set is assumed to be more womanly. Right. You know, there, there's some discussion about which is the causal factor do engineering interns have more clout to push for this or does the industry just assume that engineers are worth more right. you know sort of thing um but there's also you know some of those inversions you know the first half of the book talked a bit about how once feminine gendered labor started to be done by men it started to get respect mm -hmm. um and teaching you look at yeah. right and you look at like the the art world and stuff like that you know, beautification, design, decoration are considered, you know, traditionally feminine sorts of things to do. And you get in America, at least, uh, uh, these abstract expressionists who are like self-destructive alcoholic cowboys living in Wyoming, AKA Jackson Pollock, you know, mm -hmm. because you had to be like, in, in order to be taken seriously, you had to be this, you know, toxic masculines, you know, super gene super genius ideal to break yeah. through the, the 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 feminized nature of of decorative work heck in the tech world right our first computer programmer was a woman and uh, now there's no women in tech M much of that chapter about programming is about how that job shifted from one that was perceived as done by women and done as menial unskilled work to right. one done by these male loner types these yeah. geniuses and how that identity had to be actually crafted had to be invented yes. it yeah. wasn't just a natural thing that happened it was by design isolated competitive people were easier to uh, control mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and less likely to organize yeah than a, a pool of laborers but yeah I, i'm remembering that now that you mention it going from yeah, that the original programming and computation was drudge work. And that there's a lot until of... Until it was innovated. Yeah, toxic masculinity woven in that, you know, if you sit people behind a screen all day and keep them, keep them apart, that, you know, the loneliness is intrinsic and that you know, the desire for connection or relationships. I mean, obviously these creative geniuses don't need that sort of 
uh, superfluous, time-consuming stuff that would just take their creativity away from what they're really meant to be doing. And there's another group of people that gets lost in this sort of focus on the individual genius, which is all the people around them who are necessary for enabling the genius to do anything at all. Um, She writes a lot in the chapter about art, about the support staff and the lesser artists who help out the big name artists such that there are big name artists in, you know, 2021 um, and their struggles for, you know, recognition as workers and in some cases, unionization. Um, some cases it's, you know, matters of getting better pay from the gallery. Some pa- cases, these are gallery employees. Um, th- there's a lot that goes into, you know, putting a big name artist painting in a frame in a gallery. Yeah. I remember seeing um, Albert Paley is a a local um, steel artist, metal artist. Um, I don't know if you guys know who he is. Amazing stuff. But I remember seeing a documentary about the process of making a whole bunch. They might still be in New York city, actually. Um, a whole bunch, like, you know, basically fabricating them all here in Rochester, taking them all to New York City, setting them up in the middle of the night. How many hundreds of people had to deal with these giant steel sculptures? And Albert Paley is the one that gets all the accolades, all the recognition, um, probably the vast majority of the money. And then basically everybody else should feel grateful to be in the glow of this famous genius. Yeah, that was that was something she called out almost verbatim was these giant sculptures, you know, and mm-hmm. these massive installation works, they should have credits posted. Right, like a movie. The, yeah, like a movie. And I think that's when we initially did our discussion of that book, I think that's something that we brought up how, you know, a movie does have credits, you it know. Does. Everybody who was on it was in there and I am well, curious. I don't Hollywood know is unionized. Right. And I, I was curious. I don't know if y'all had any thoughts or, or specific information about that because the film industry came up right around the same time that unionization was very strong and on the rise in the United States. So it was a, it was a new industry when it was a time when it was natural for mm. large groups of people to be organizing around their industries. Whereas a fun historical coincidence. Yeah. You know? I mean, but you know, sculpture and museums, had been around for hundreds of years and already were set in their ways, you know, by the time we get there. And then sort of the last chapter of the book proper before she gets into her conclusion is a chapter about athletes. Um, And this is a subject we have talked about on punching out before, you know, we've talked about how, even though athletes uh, at the highest levels of professional sports are well-paid there are a lot of athletes lower on the ladder who are not well paid in any mm-hmm. way, shape, or form. And there is also exploitation even at those high levels. Yeah, um, absolutely. And something she notes, you know, in this chapter, getting back to um, that theme from earlier in the book, is how uh, women's bodies are policed in when they participate in athletics, when they, uh, you know, for a while they weren't allowed to do that. Um, and to this day, they are women athletes are generally paid less than their mm-hmm. male counterparts. You know, and this is a something that we wanted to do with this episode is these problems, they go throughout society. They aren't just limited to one profession. They are something that you see 
everywhere once you start seeing them. Yeah. And once you start seeing the patterns, mm-hmm. you realize the ways in which they repeat. Yes. And that um, there are so many inextricably linked modes of oppression in order to enable capitalist systems to continue and gender roles and patriarchy and heteronormativity and racism and, you know, all of these things prop each other up so that we can continue exploiting ourselves as the many for the benefit of the few. Mm-hmm. On that bleak note, we'll call an end <laughs> to this segment. Um, I think it's time that we uh, move on to the third, the positive segment. If you're a longtime listener of the show, we'll be back after this break to talk about Jaffe's conclusion and you know what we do with all this information. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. You can subscribe to the show or listen to past episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and other podcast apps. We are also on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Rachel. Hello, everyone. And Scott. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Thanks for having me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We've been discussing for the past 50 minutes or so Sarah Jaffe's book, Work Won't Love You Back. Um, And in the book, she describes the struggles that are shared by a lot of different professions and the, the reasons behind why so many people are feeling unfulfilled by this thing they've been told it should be so fulfilling for them. You know, I, I mentioned in the last segment that a lot of this book seems like a case that we're losing the argument that we on the left are sort of uh, have lost the narrative when it comes to work. And that this idea that you should love work and find fulfillment and identity through it has taken over and is sort of impossible to replace in some ways. But Jaffe really feels that people are seeing past it. She feels that especially over the last couple of years and into the pandemic, people have started having the wool pulled from their eyes to some extent. Um, and are, you know, recognizing that this order is not helping for them. Actually, there's a few quotes that um, speak to that from the book. She says, the promises made to a generation of hope laborers are being revealed for the lies they are. And then a little further down the page, the positive ideals of freedom, choice, and fulfilling work are increasingly unsellable to a public that can now see the realities behind those pipe dreams. The exposure of capitalism's cruelty makes the command to love our jobs a brutal joke. Yeah. Um, She talks a bit about the concept of capitalist realism, which is Mm. the way that capitalism reinforces its existence through ideas and Mm -hmm. just the way we talk about it. And, and causing us to think that it's somehow like beyond our capability, that it's not a construct to see it as just inevitable. Yeah. Yeah. There is no alternative. Yeah. No alternative. People have been, yeah. Unable to imagine something else. Which is brilliant, really. It's a brilliant scheme. But she writes, uh, quote, 
Capitalist realism has had a thousand growing cracks put in it since the 2008 financial crisis, and at any moment now it could shatter entirely. I'm not sure I share that optimism that, you know, this breakup is just moments away, but I I do think there's something to be taken from this book in the idea that, you know, we are all in this struggle together. This Mm -hmm. idea that, um, you know, we're all sharing the same issues and as such, we can unify around that. That is a point for solidarity that hopefully can be used towards to build something better than what we have today. And I do think whenever there's a period of collective heartbreak and grief, like we are still surviving through during this pandemic, that's also an opportunity for us to um, cultivate a greater sense of community. Um, and I think capitalism, as as you just mentioned, Ryan, does a really excellent job of trying to reinforce its own existence by pitting us against each other in these tough moments instead of, yeah, realizing exactly why we're all suffering so much and placing the blame where it should be placed, um, you know, preventing us from organizing. But yeah, when people have less to lose, all the more reason for us to organize together. And yeah, we are all suffering through something that is um, unique in our lifetimes for sure, and maybe ever. So if not now, then when? There's... A line actually in the introduction of the book that I think um, gives me the most hope, and it's this sentence here. If we recalled why we worked in the first place to pay the bills, we might wonder why we're working so much for so little. You know, so much has been constructed to make us believe that we're in this for um, the family of the workplace. There's a lot of talk in this book about how workplaces have... uh, branded themselves as families um there's one company i believe in the chapter about the the tech industry that describes itself as a fampany which is just a gruesome word i hate excuse me um but you know (laughs) if we can recognize that none of that is true then we can sort of have a clear-eyed view of what we actually need in this world yeah, a couple other quotes from the um, from the conclusion that are kind of related to that. Like um, one was from Sylvia Federici: "Nothing so effectively stifles our lives as the transformation into work of the activities and relations that satisfy our desires." And then Selma James wrote: "Capital takes who we could be and limits us to who we are because it takes our time, which happens to be our life." Basically, squandering our lives working for somebody else instead of becoming who we could be. Well, I think it's it's fascinating that as far as I know, the only thing that, um, you know, Jesus Christ and John Lennon both agreed on was all you need is love. So uh, the, the companies are working so hard to, to try to convince us that, you know, we're all one big happy family until it's convenient for us to just be employees again. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, we, we could realize we could culturally as a society be more like a family and render one another more of that love and understanding um, 
that you might to a family member that you don't always agree with, but you still right. love. Be willing to sacrifice for one another. Um, you know, I guess my conclusion here was that long term, that's really the only thing that is going to work is if people love and respect other people to the point that they are willing to support and up, uplift them, even mm -hmm. at their own short term expense. Um, and that, you know, leads to collective organizing across, uh, you know, across industry and other interests. But um, I do think in the short term that there are steps that whether or not we're making good progress on, people are at least actually talking about and are being raised. And 10 years ago, three people in the country had heard about the idea of universal basic income. <laughs> right. And now it's something that people are, you know, at least arguing about, um, you know, universal healthcare, universal basic income, that sort of thing. It's like, there are these things that we can do, which a uh, slight tangent. I mean, I went to art school. So the chapter on art, uh, you know, sort of struck home with me. And I have been conflicted about whether that should be a career or a calling or, you know, something that you are supposed to be exchanging on the free market. And there's so many of these areas where if we were taking care of each other with UBI healthcare and stuff like that, people would have more of the opportunity to explore art, to explore caretaking, to explore other relations and, you know, break those away from the, the capitalist domination. So th I think that there are incremental ways to let people see right. it could be so much better and it's worth working and fighting for. Right. Yeah. To explore our collective humanity, really. Um, but in order to do that, we have to better support one another, take better care of each other and see ourselves as inextricably linked to one another, that my liberation is your liberation. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good sentiment on which to end this show. Um, uh, once again, the, the book we've been discussing for the past hour is Sarah Jaffe's Work Won't Love You Back. If you can't tell, we we thoroughly enjoyed it. <laughs> it's an excellent book. For this week, I'm Ryan. I'm Rachel. And I'm Scott. This is Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. <laughs>